Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Major corruption scandal. And you'll never guess who. Okay, it's Clarence Thomas. Justice Thomas has had the courage to define his own approach at the cost of being misunderstood. I'm Julia Longoria. This is More Perfect. Asians should be getting into Harvard more than whites, but they don't because Harvard gives them significantly lower personal ratings. Harvard ranks Asians less likable, confident, and kind. Affirmative action is back at the Supreme Court. Asian students say they're cheated by Harvard and UNC's policies of quote-unquote diversity. But while I was listening to lawyers argue, I was transfixed on one person in the room. Someone who used to never speak in court. Now... He's the first one to speak up. Uh, Mr. Park, um, I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. Justice Clarence Thomas. It seems to mean everything for everyone. Justice Thomas is not a fan of affirmative action. And I've always wondered why. He was the only person of color on the court for nearly 20 years. Could the court use some affirmative action? But throughout that time, he's always been against it. Today, Clarence Thomas is the most senior justice sitting up there. In five more years, he could become the longest-serving justice ever on the Supreme Court. And to some Americans, Clarence Thomas makes no sense. He wants to kill affirmative action. He helped dismantle the Voting Rights Act. He accepted gifts from a Republican megadonor without reporting it. His wife urged the White House to overturn the 2020 election. And then there was the way we were all introduced to him, with the allegations Anita Hill made against him in his confirmation hearings. On the other hand, some Americans feel like he's one of the only ones who makes sense, that he's restoring justice to our country, one decision at a time. This week on More Perfect we asked a pretty basic question. What does Clarence Thomas think Clarence Thomas is doing? It pains me deeply, or more deeply than any of you can imagine, to be perceived by so many members of my race as doing them harm. All the sacrifice, all the long hours of preparation were to help, not to hurt. To search for an answer, we look to what's been hiding in plain sight over the last 40 years. His public speeches, his writings on the court. And we talked to people who studied him, got to know him on a personal level. All to try to understand, arguably, the most powerful Black man in America. How his past informs the decisions he makes today. When I first heard it, I was like, wow, you know, who would guess that, you know, this Reagan appointee is such an admirer of the famous Black radical Malcolm X. You might even say, we found a Black nationalist. That's what led me to think, hey, look, Justice Thomas really sees himself sort of as a Malcolm X, so I'll call him Clarence X. 
who believes that America is incurably racist. You were black, things were changing, and we were very, very upset. And that the best hope for black people in America lies only within themselves. There is a part of Thomas that is hard to walk away from because once you let him in the door, he starts saying certain things that you might find yourself agreeing with. And then the question is, well, how do I, how do I get him out of the house then? This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, Congress has passed a law that will ban TikTok. But why? If you are going to take away an app used by 170 million people, I believe that lawmakers and the government who ostensibly work for us, the American people, owe us more information about why that divestiture is being moved forward. Debating the TikTok ban. That's the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Word on the street is you you kind of brought Clarence Thomas to the attention of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> um, do we have you to thank for for Justice Clarence Thomas, you think? Boy, <laughs> holy moly. <laughs> this is Juan Williams. I'm a senior news analyst for Fox News Channel, and I formerly was a correspondent for The Washington Post for NPR. The word on the street comes from Juan himself. He kind of put Clarence Thomas on the map. It all started in 1980 at the Fairmont Hotel. So it's a rather grand hotel on a cliff overlooking San Francisco Bay. It's right there. The hotel was bustling with Black academics, Black MDs, Black lawyers, Black dentists, Black political hopefuls dressed in dark blue suits. It was December of 1980, and Ronald Reagan had just been elected. Juan was on assignment for the Washington Post to cover something called the Black Alternatives Conference, organized by a conservative think tank. The event attracted Black Republicans, who were anomalies at the time, and many disillusioned Democrats. And we were in a conference room and seated at a table, white tablecloth. At lunch... He happens to take a seat at the same table as this one guy. This young, very eager and very engaging young man wearing glasses. He wasn't a headliner or anything. He was an aide for a Republican senator from Missouri who had paid his own way to be at the conference. And quite, you know, deliberate in his thinking. And right off the bat, young Clarence Thomas came in hot. Here was Thomas saying, this is a moment when the Black community needs to realize that the civil rights movement seems to be stalled. Take desegregating schools. Thomas said it's not leading to better outcomes for Black students. 
He'd later write about this in reference to Brown v. Board of Education, which declared racial segregation of schools unconstitutional. He thinks, you know, everybody celebrates it, but he thinks it was wrongly argued. Anytime the government tried to help, he said, it just made things worse. And he offered the example of his sister, who he said was so dependent on government aid. She just waits by the mailbox for the mailman. And he found this tragic. Why is his sister in a position where she's just waiting for a welfare check? Were you pushing back on his ideas? I think so. I mean, the idea was to try to get him to say more. I I mean, it was like, huh, this is fascinating. Why do you say that? Explain it to me. And then it's not like you just went and talked to the guy who runs the NAACP. This guy's the other side of the tracks here. He's the outsider. So when it comes time to write the column about the conference, Juan ends up focusing entirely on the no-name aide, Clarence Thomas. The column runs in the morning paper. What did Thomas think about your article? He didn't like it. I had never been in a newspaper before. And I saw myself on the op-ed page of the Washington Post. I thought I would die. He had never been subject to that kind of media spotlight. The response from most readers of the Washington Post was, wow, this guy's out of his mind. Why is he bringing up his sister? Why is he putting her in that ugly public position. There was criticism, name-calling, ad hominem attacks, and vilification. This was all new to me. What bothered him was the public reaction. It was overwhelming. Not everyone criticized Thomas. President Ronald Reagan's team was busy scouting new hires, and they liked what they saw. Reagan would eventually hire Clarence Thomas to head up the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. But the initial blowback to the article stung Thomas. I had reached out to him afterwards, and he shut me down and didn't talk to me. I think it was, you know, close to six months before he agreed to have lunch. Juan says they agreed to another white tablecloth lunch, this time at the Old Ebbett Grill in D.C. Which is a pretty famous restaurant, still exists, kind of right next to the White House there. And they get to talking. I remember sitting in a booth with him, and he acted as if I had hurt him. And I'm like, but I just quoted you. Dude, this is what you told me. And and, and he keeps repeating the same stuff anyway. So our relationship got back on track. This was the first of many meetings over the years. There were lunches, meetings in Clarence Thomas's office, Slowly, it started to look like a friendship. Juan says they'd even come over to his house. I remember we used to mess around with weights in my basement, and it's rare that people ever say this, but physically, Clarence Thomas is built like a football player. He would say he backs off weights at times because he just got too bulky. And for me, as a skinny guy, I was like, no, I need to get bulky. Juan Williams learned a lot about Clarence Thomas in these conversations, about his views, about how he grew up. But the funny thing is, Clarence Thomas also learned something about Clarence Thomas through Juan's writing about him. For the first time, I was designated a black conservative. (laughs) This was news to me. (laughs) 
I had been called a lot of things in my life, but never a conservative. He'd voted for Democrats like George McGovern and Hubert Humphrey in the past. So how did this man, who was one of the most conservative justices on the Supreme Court today, start out? That, for me, was really the beginning of the puzzle, was how somebody can move from one side of the spectrum to the other without, in some ways, changing very much at all. That's political scientist Corey Robin. He read Juan Williams' work and went on to write his own book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, which, a former clerk told us, caught the attention of Thomas's wife. And he told us that uh, Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, sent an email to uh, Listserv, a former Clarence Thomas clerk's, railing about how this Marxist professor thinks he understands her husband better than her she does. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's pretty cool. I had no idea. Corey says he used to think of Thomas as a political hack, a hatchet man for the Republican Party who just happens to be black. But reading Juan Williams' account and immersing himself in Thomas's own judicial opinions, Corey started to see a completely different portrait emerge. He thinks about race all the time, that black people get the short end of the stick in America. It is at the center of his worldview, which is rooted in his past growing up in the South. I always tell my wife, my whole life is just one miracle after another because um, it should have ended tragically. Clarence Thomas was born in Pinpoint, Georgia, about 10 miles south of Savannah. It was a tiny community of about 100 people, first settled after the Civil War by freed Black people. Growing up, he spoke Gullah, a Creole mixture of African languages and English. His father left when I think he was very young, disappeared. His mother couldn't raise her kids, and she ultimately brought Thomas and his brother to live with her father, his grandfather. For Thomas, living with his grandfather, Myers Anderson, was a huge influence on his life. It provided a blueprint for how to see the world going forward. He called his own autobiography, My Grandfather's Son. He talks with great emotion about, you know, his grandfather doing some kind of farm labor in the back of the house and this white woman driving up. Thomas said this woman, Miss Morgan, drove up the dirt road leading to the house in a big Buick. And you can see the dust coming from her car, hitting the tires of her car, rolling through the dirt road. Miss Morgan got out of the car, walked up to his grandfather. Calling his grandfather boy. And insulted him in front of Thomas and his brother. And to watch him first look at us and then look back at her, then look at us again. And as little kids, you know, I think you think, now what are you going to do? And how are you going to deal with it? You're the greatest man we know. The choice his grandfather faced in this moment, as Thomas saw it, was between lashing out and staying calm, maintaining his dignity. He did the hard thing to hold his discipline. His grandfather grit his teeth and just accept that treatment as a subservient. 
his grandfather was just two generations out from slavery, and he had high hopes for his grandson. He took Thomas out of all black public schools as a kid and put him in a private Catholic school, also all black, with a great reputation. But then Thomas moved to a white boarding school to prepare for the seminary to become a priest. There, Thomas was one of the only black students and became the butt of jokes. They get into bed, the lights go out, and, you know, the jokes are like, smile, Clarence, I can't see, you know, like, you know, black people's white teeth is going to illuminate the room or something. Along this path that his grandfather had laid out for him, he kept coming across racist seminarians who were not exactly Christ-like. No one spoke up to defend him. So what really bothered me more than anything else was the failure of other people to have the courage to stand up for the visions, for the ideals that we mouth so easily. Then came 1968. It seemed that the whole world had gone mad. I have some very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. This event, this trauma, I could not take, especially when one of my fellow seminarians, not knowing that I was standing behind him, declared that he hoped the SOB died. This was a man of God mortally stricken by an assassin's bullet and one preparing for the priesthood had wished evil upon him. In his autobiography, Thomas wrote that the church was silent on the issue of racism and this silence haunted him. That year, he realized that no one was going to take care of him or any black person in America. On so many levels, it's puts young Clarence Thomas into a tizzy. uh, You know, he feels like a pinball being binged around the room here, you know, like he wants to please his grandfather. He wants to be a good Christian. He wishes this seminary was a more faithful place to all of its children. So he's sort of at a loss. And that's when he leaves seminary. Dropping out of seminary was not part of the plan. His grandfather was so furious, he kicked him out of the house, cut him off financially. The life I dreamed of so often during those hot summers on the farm in Georgia or during what seemed like endless hours on the oil truck with my grandfather expired as Dr. King expired. Suddenly, this cataclysmic event ripped me from the moorings of my grandparents, my youth, and my faith and catapulted me headlong into the abyss. I was being consumed by the circumstances in which I found myself. Circumstances that I saw as responding only to race. Race became like a substitute religion. He left the church, left the South altogether, disillusioned by his grandfather's approach of quiet dignity, and went to a liberal arts college called Holy Cross. He was one of 20 Black students new to the school. And in these Black students, for the first time, he found community. In college, there was an air of excitement, apprehension, and anger. We started the Black Students' Union. 
and searched for a way to make sense of a cruel world. Through another Black man, one very different from his grandfather. Distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, friends and enemies. I think what would really be a surprise to people is he had Malcolm X records. And so he would listen to Malcolm X. And he has it in his memory banks, Malcolm X speeches, because he would listen to them interminably. Well, just realize that once we learn to talk the language that they understand, they will then get the point. He was somebody who identified as a Black nationalist. This is Angela Onwachi Willick, now the dean of Boston University School of Law. She was one of the first academics to write about how Malcolm X and his Black nationalist ideas influenced a young Clarence Thomas. Like, walk me through, like, what are Malcolm X's ideas that sort of ring true to Clarence Thomas's worldview? This sense that integration is not necessarily the answer, that one doesn't need to be sitting in a classroom with white people in order to learn better, right? That the issue is um, unequal resources. Black nationalism is the sense that Black people are worthy and powerful and can accomplish whatever we would want on our own if we rely on ourselves and work together to achieve it. I was a bit of a radical, but that's what happened back then. You were Black, things were changing, and we were very, very upset. This is the militant Clarence Thomas. I was tired of being in the minority, and I was tired of turning the other cheek. Trying to strike out in a different direction. I, along with many Blacks, found ways to protest. And trying to make it clear to people who he is, demand respect for himself. And try to change the treatment we receive in this country. You know, if you ran into him on the campus, he would not have come across to you as some sort of milk toast, moderate, future Black conservative, no. You would have seen this radical-looking young Black man. He saw himself as a crusader in the movement for Black power. We protested. We worked in the free breakfast program. We would walk out of school in the winter of 1969 in protest. But, as Angela points out, Black nationalism is complex. And there is overlap between Malcolm X and Black conservatism. Although we don't think of of Malcolm X as being conservative, I think it's a lot of the things that you find in Black conservative ideology. um, Concepts of self-reliance, economic improvement within the Black community, degradation that comes with state-mandated segregation and the state-mandated statements that African-Americans are inferior. You know, those were the kinds of things you would hear Malcolm X talking about. And I think that it spoke to... Clarence Thomas, in part because it resonated with everything that he was experiencing in his life and what he saw around him. And I think it resonates with many Black people. I closed out the 60s as one angry young man, waiting on the revolution that I was certain would soon come. On visits home to Georgia, Thomas says he'd get into horrible exchanges with his grandfather. Thomas would talk about the revolution And his grandfather would say, I didn't raise you to be like this. After all our sacrifices, this is what you've become. 
one of those damn educated fools. And Thomas would ask himself, how could a black man like his grandfather from the Deep South, who had survived the worst kind of bigotry possible, refuse to admit that America was tainted, corrupt, and had to be rebuilt from the ground up? Something didn't add up for Thomas. His grandfather's approach of quiet dignity didn't protect him in seminary. But he started to notice that the revolutionary road didn't seem to deliver for Black people either. It all came to a head at a protest in 1970. The questioning for me started in the spring of 1970 after an unauthorized demonstration in Cambridge, Massachusetts. There was smoke from the fires, vapor from the tear gas, and an eerie quality of unreality in familiar Harvard Square. Why was I doing this rather than using my intellect? When police displayed shotguns and tear gas guns, voices from the crowd shouted pig and asked, why don't you kill someone? Perhaps I was empowered by the anger and relieved that I could now strike back at the faceless oppressor. But why was I conceding my intellect and rather fighting much like a brute? This I could not answer, except to say that I was tired of being restrained. It was intoxicating to act upon one's rage, to wear it on one's shoulder, to be defined by it. Yet ultimately, it was destructive and I knew it. So in the spring of 1970, in a nihilistic fog, I prayed that I be relieved of the anger and the animosity that ate at my soul. I did not want to hate anymore, and I had to stop before it totally consumed me. I had to make a fundamental choice. Do I believe in the principles of this country or not? After such angst, I concluded that I did. He was wrestling with something that I think the entire Black freedom struggle was wrestling with. Corey Robin again. And so, in the early or late 60s and early 1970s, you see a lot of Black power activists at the local level sort of saying, you know, the day of marching and protest is over. We've got to find other ways. So Thomas takes a hard turn away from revolution and enrolls in law school. He goes to Yale Law School. Juan Williams. And much like people talking about his silence on the high court bench, he's pretty much silent at Yale Law School. And he doesn't want any kind of acknowledgement of him as a Black activist or a Black student. He, he just wants to sit in the back of the class, do his work, and get A's. What was your favorite memory as a student at Yale? As far as my greatest moment, there, was, there have been some singular moments that I did have at Yale. It was called graduation. <laughs> <laughs> I got out of that place, man. He went to the most elite law school in the nation. Dean Angela Onwachi-Willick again. With people from very, very privileged families who might have made assumptions about him and say things that are uh, microaggressive and hurtful and harmful. You you also went to Yale, right? For a PhD program. Is your opinion of what he thinks informed by your experience there? Yeah, I think there, I mean, there's, there's a, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas was treated very differently at Yale than he was in Pinpoint or at seminary. 
was a different kind of racism. It was a much more subtle racism. I think there are many whites who act friendly toward Negroes. One of the things that Malcolm X used to say, he made a distinction between the fox and the wolf. The wolf doesn't act friendly. The wolf is scary, bears its teeth, is dangerous. You know what you're getting with the wolf. But the fox seems very different from the wolf. The fox acts friendly toward the lamb. Not so scary, but is in the end just as lethal as the wolf. And usually the fox is the one who ends up with the lamb chop on his plate. And Malcolm X used that analogy to explain two different kinds of white people. There's, you know, the white Southern racist, vicious, violent, overt. Kind of like the white woman who strut up to Clarence Thomas's grandfather's house and calls him boy. You know what you're getting with that kind of white person. And then there's a different kind of white person who seems like what we call today your ally. Seems like he or she cares about you and for you and is looking out for you. But is ultimately, like the fox, just as much your enemy. Their appetite is the same. Their motives are the same. It's only their mannerisms and, and methods that differ. And that person, for Malcolm X, is, is the liberal, the white liberal. At Yale, Thomas sees foxes everywhere. One of his favorite songs in the early 1970s. Was that song, Smiling Faces, Smiling Faces Tell Lies. Um, They don't tell the truth. This was his favorite song, and he'd listen to it over and over and over again. The thing that stays with me all these years later about his experience at Yale is that... Juan Williams again. When he went to do interviews for law firms, that all the law firms, he said, wanted him to do pro bono work, and they were talking to him about what he could do in terms of race, and he wanted none of it. He didn't want to be seen as a black man. He wanted to be seen as a lawyer and a Yale Law School graduate. I couldn't get a job in my state of Georgia. I looked at the firms in Atlanta. I looked at lots of places. I got zero job offers. But eventually, he did get an offer from Missouri's attorney general. The biggest problem that I had with him is he was a Republican. But, <laughs> but I got over it when I had only had one job offer. <laughs> By 1980, Clarence Thomas says he was disillusioned by the Democrats and their promises to legislate Black people's problems out of existence. He was searching for a new path, one that would combine the wisdom of his grandfather and of Malcolm X, a path that led him to the Black Alternatives Conference. That's how we met Juan Williams, how we got on President Reagan's radar, and eventually how he was appointed to the Supreme Court by Reagan's successor, George H.W. Bush. The confirmation hearing and the allegations against him could fill and have filled a whole other series of podcasts. We didn't talk about, you know, for example, Anita Hill, you know. Yeah. (laughs) 
there was another line of questioning at his hearings that we don't hear much about anymore. One of the charges that has been brought against you in this nominating process is uh, that you benefited uh, by quotas or affirmative action, but do not support them. I guess the question is directly in entry to Yale. Were you part of an affirmative action quota? Were you part of a racial quota in terms of entering that law school? Um, Senator, I have uh, not during my adult life or during my academic career been a part of any quota. Uh, The effort on the part of Yale during my years there was to reach out and open its doors to minorities whom it felt were qualified. Uh, And I took them uh, at their word on that. I found that, honestly, on a personal level, like, kind of a rude thing to ask. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you make of that kind of question? Like, um, was he a beneficiary, you think, of affirmative action? Oh, I mean, I think yes, but I don't mean it as a slight. From what we could tell, Thomas was accepted to Yale in 1971 under an affirmative action program. His graduating class of 1974 had 12 Black people in it. And Dean Angela says it's unlikely Thomas would have been appointed to the court by his credentials alone. Traditionally, people appointed to the Supreme Court have a history of clerking for judges or working on lower courts. He didn't have all the markers that many of the other Supreme Court justices have, and yet fully capable of doing excellent work. There were clearly structural racist reasons why he didn't have a clerkship. Even now, like, almost no Black people were being hired for any kind of judicial clerkships, much less Supreme Court clerkships. I spoke to one of the very few Black law clerks there have ever been on the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas was just so personable and kind to put me at ease. Stephen F. Smith, now a law professor at Notre Dame, got the job to clerk for Clarence Thomas in 1993 just two years after he was appointed. And it was just, it's almost like you didn't even know you were interviewing. And because I was just sitting there as a young guy, I can't believe I'm in the Supreme Court. He might have seen himself in Clarence Thomas. They both came from humble beginnings in the South. There was just natural points of affinity like that, as in addition, of course, to being both Black and on the conservative side of things. That's a one-year job, and then the time just flew by. We've stayed in touch off and on. Smith wrote an article called Clarence X in 2009 that claimed Justice Clarence Thomas was a Black nationalist, at least a version of a Black nationalist, and that Thomas had retained his Malcolm X roots as a jurist. By and large, people left and right were completely blind to this, and on the right, totally blind, before I wrote uh, my article Corey Robin, he wrote a book recently on Justice Thomas and endorsing the idea that Justice Thomas uh, has a black nationalist streak. You know, Corey Robin. Apparently I'm a Marxist professor who pretends to understand Clarence Thomas better than his wife. (laughs) I'm not a Marxist, but I had written something very similar in the Clarence X piece. But that just shows you, even she doesn't see it. She's married to the guy and she doesn't see it. He's a black nationalist. Do you know if Justice Thomas was upset about the book or about your article at all? I don't know what he thought about the book. And I I know he was not upset about the article. In fact, it was kind of funny. I sent it to him. And he wrote me a note back and hoped I was doing well. 
and then he signed it Clarence X. So, wow. <laughs> so I don't think he was a he was not opposed I don't think to he it. Objected to the comparison, yes. <laughs> Stephen Smith makes the claim that Clarence X, black nationalist, is on full display in his Supreme Court decisions. If you were going to tell the story of Clarence Thomas in one Supreme Court case, where would you focus? The Michigan Affirmative Action cases really just show, you know, just Black nationalist thinking. I think it's undeniable. After the break, we travel back in time to the University of Michigan when Clarence X was in the minority decision. The dissent that could be today's majority opinion. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. From WNYC Studios, this is More Perfect. I'm Julia Longoria. And we are back. The year is 2003. And just like this current term in the Supreme Court, there were two affirmative action cases the court was considering, both at the University of Michigan, white students versus administrators. I just remember the sense of reading his opinions over the years and just saying, wow, he is saying things in these cases that nobody else is saying, number one. Former Thomas clerk Stephen Smith again. And number two, when he says those things, none of the other conservatives are signing on. So they're voting the same way on these racial issues that come before the court. But Thomas has a unique take. So if you were telling the movie version of mm. this case, <laughs> how does oh, it start? Gosh. That's a hard one. Corey Robbins says if affirmative action, the movie, were made by white conservatives, he knows exactly who the main character would be. They think about the white victim of affirmative action. Can we get you up closer to the mics? Why do you think what happened to you was wrong? I think that racial discrimination is wrong. Diversity is about your character and your experiences. It's not about your skin color. They think about that white ethnic kid, you know, maybe whose father was a factory worker, you know, who's Polish or Italian. That's not where Thomas begins. It doesn't begin with a white law student. He really begins with a white administrator. Thomas's movie stars the white person picking who gets in to the University of Michigan. They're those liberal racists that Malcolm X warned us about. I want you to say your name. Yes, I'm Mary Sue Coleman. I'm president of the University of Michigan. These administrators, why do they want affirmative action? 
Is it because they care about black people? No way. And he says, you know, the first thing you have to know about these people, their first commitment above all else, is to elitism, exclusivism. Well, we're in a where we're a highly competitive institution, where we have many, many more students than can possibly be admitted to the university. And I feel sorry when everybody doesn't get in who wants they to They want to make their law school to be really hard to get into. It's getting much harder to get into a top school and nearly impossible to get into the Ivies today. The harder it is to get in, the more of a kind of elite preserve you have. At Harvard, only 3.4% of all applicants were accepted. That's You know, when those statistics come out, Columbia's rate dropped to 3.7% from 4%, 5%, 6%. Really a record low for both institutions. Others they love that stuff. They love it. Because the lower your acceptance rate is, the more exclusive you are. I hope this is filmic enough. Um, You're making movies, Corey. (laughs) (laughs) And if they truly wanted to open up the institution to students of color, to black people, and again, I'm speaking in Thomas's voice, if that's what they cared about most, the simplest, easiest way to do that is to Get rid of the LSAT. We know that the LSAT reproduces a kind of racial skew. And it's not because black people are less intelligent than white people. These tests are designed in a certain way because white people have access to tutors. So get rid of the goddamn LSAT. University of Michigan Law School is a top 10 law school. Administrators want the school to stay above the rest. I teach at CUNY. CUNY? where Corey teaches, serves a huge population. It's not trying to be elite. CUNY is a genuinely multiracial institution. And my classrooms look like the kind of classrooms that defenders of affirmative action claim they want. But the University of Michigan doesn't want to be like CUNY. It wants to be elite. So then the question is, if we're going to be elite and diverse, how do we do it? And, and, and why do we want to be diverse? And here, Thomas, I think, starts hitting very close to the bone. He says, because you want the look of a certain classroom, aesthetics. It's kind of a shocking word when you think about it. Because what he's saying is you want your ruling class to look a certain way. You want a world that looks kind of like what we used to call a Benetton ad, right? Multiracial, multicultural. And Thomas, I don't even know if he uses exactly these words, but there's a suggestion like they want to look hip. And, And that's what it's really about. So then the question is, how do we maintain our elitism and our exclusivity, members only, and get that kind of racial aesthetic that we're looking for? Enter affirmative action. This is exploitative, right? You're exploiting blacks. Professor Stephen Smith again. You're not saying we're giving minorities a chance to prove themselves at this higher level and to benefit from the greater instruction available at that level. You're saying we need them here so that we're a more elite institution. And so Thomas says that's exploitative, that you're choosing black and minority applicants through affirmative action, not because you want them there or because they'll benefit from being there, um, but simply to make the class, quote, look right. 
And for Thomas, like that's what the story of affirmative action is all about, is enhancing the discretionary power of white elites to choose which black person is going to sit at the table with them. And, you know, this is, um, to use a little, you know, triggering uh, for him. Um, it reminds him of, a, a, you know, what it was like at Yale Law School. And ultimately, I think it makes him think of just the story of white America. To Thomas, you know what you're getting with the blatant racism of a Southern white woman calling your grandfather boy. He prefers that to the hidden racism of the white administrator. It's disguised as benevolence and assumes Black people can only succeed with white people's help. Any effort, policy, or program that has as a prerequisite the acceptance of the notion that Blacks are inferior is a non-starter with me. Where do you think his argument falls apart, if, if it does, for you? On, on this particular issue? Corey Robin again. Yeah, yeah. Um... Um, so my answer to where, you know, how would you counter him or where he goes wrong, I think once you went down that argument about diversity, I think then you are vulnerable. And I think there Clarence Thomas is kind of right. I think he believes he's setting the record for what will eventually be declared to be right. Dean Angela Onwachi Willick again. But I think he's wrong. <laughs> It's way more complicated, right? <laughs> Schools are thinking about how do they get students in the, the door? What tuition people are going to pay? How do they operate? Angela would know. She's a law school dean. She says these days, one of the big arguments people make against affirmative action is that these kids who are applying, they might not get into Yale or University of Michigan, but they'll get in somewhere. And so the response really to that is there is something meaningful about having access to the University of Michigan Law School and the ways in which it can launch someone's career in the way that other schools may not be able to launch someone's career. Her point is elite institutions matter. And if we make them more diverse, that's better for the country. The beauty of being able to be in higher education institutions that are diverse is that that's one of the few places in our very, very residentially segregated society where people of different backgrounds come together. The subtle racism that Clarence Thomas went through at Yale in a den of Malcolm X foxes is a fine price to pay. One of the realities of that is because everybody's lived in their own segregated bubbles, people say and do things that are often unknowingly, unintentionally offensive and hurtful, particularly for those who historically found themselves on the margins or on the outside of society. And it is one of the necessary pains that we have to go through as a society to get better. Angela says diversity is worth it. But Corey Robin says diversity is the wrong word. There was a different possible answer, which was essentially reparations. The reason why Black people deserve affirmative action is look at all the ways in which they've been held back. 
affirmative action shouldn't be about creating the shiniest brochure with a token hijabi and black person laughing on a lawn. It should be about righting real wrongs that have been done in our country. Yeah, I mean, it seems like affirmative action is this band-aid, in a way, that distracts us from solving the real systemic problems. Right. Yeah. Um, now, of course, you know, well, I was, I was say, you know, Thomas, once we start talking about those systemic problems, you're talking about, you know, economic redistribution, a whole bunch of other things that he wouldn't buy either. That's Corey Robin, the Marxist professor who thinks he knows Thomas better than his wife. So um, I think there are some people who might be sympathetic to him, but, you know, they should understand, like, he's not buying the rest of the package either. Digging into Thomas's decisions, he seems to start with ideas that Malcolm X and many Black people might agree with. It's interesting because so many of the ideas themselves are things that you know, I might say in a room with my friends, or I've heard certainly from many Black people who would identify as liberal as well, we just come out differently in terms of what we think the solution or the approach should be. But then he makes a big turn, a turn that ends with him siding firmly in the camp of white conservatives like Scalia and Alito. Some examples. There's a 1999 decision, Chicago v. Morales. I remember that sticking out to me. A city law let local police break up groups that included anyone they, quote, reasonably believed to be a gang member. The Supreme Court's majority struck down that law, saying it was too vague and violated Chicagoans' rights due process. Justice Clarence Thomas dissented. I remember reading the Morales opinion and thinking, oh, this is a really interesting angle because he is asserting things that you hear within African-American communities. Thomas writes, gangs fill the daily lives of many of our poorest and most vulnerable citizens with a terror that the court does not give sufficient consideration. Thomas admits Black people are some of the biggest victims of violence. But reasoning that loitering isn't a constitutional right, his solution is to give the police latitude to crack down on criminals harder. Before that, a 1993 case in Houston called Graham v. Collins. This time, Thomas was in the majority. A jury sentenced a Black 17-year-old to death after convicting him of murdering a white man. He always said he was innocent. But the question before the court was, should the jury consider the defendant's troubled childhood, which might reduce his sentence? The court basically said no, and he was executed. In his opinion, Thomas says juries are racist. He even quotes Justice Thurgood Marshall, who said giving juries too much discretion would be, quote, an open invitation to discrimination. Thomas goes on to say that a mandatory death penalty scheme would be a fine way to address this problem. And finally, voting rights. Black voters and the NAACP sued a Georgia county in 1994 over an election system they claimed diluted the Black vote. They said it violated the Voting Rights Act, the civil rights law that was meant to protect Black voters from all the ways white people were suppressing their vote. Thomas's opinion is scathing and sweeping. 
He says assuming that Black voters want to vote for a Black candidate flattens Black people. The court might as well say that all Black voters think alike. He then goes on to say, there's no proof that the Black vote in the county has been diluted because Black people don't necessarily share political goals. And even if there was proof, he says, the Voting Rights Act doesn't cover that. The point of the act isn't to give courts the power to interfere in elections. The only right the law gives Black people is the right to cast a ballot. Nothing more. What is Justice Thomas's dream vision of America, do you think? Well, I mean, I think he probably would readily agree with um, with Martin Luther King's dream, right? And that he has optimism. It's, it's honestly kind of surprising to hear you call Justice Thomas an optimist. And I'm trying to think why. <laughs> um, it seems like the Black nationalist perspective is one that uh, kind of takes for granted that white people or Americans, America, will always be racist. And that, I guess, strikes me as a pessimistic worldview. Well, so, yeah, if you focus on that part, that is a pessimistic outlook. Although, you know, I don't think black nationalists are not, they don't have fixed and unchangeable views on that. So, but I think Thomas's view, even though racism exists, black people can still prosper and succeed, that we are not fated to fail. I think that is an, an optimistic point of view. And just as Thomas pointed out, has pointed out in some of his writings, like, hey, even during Jim Crow, right, when the state was uh, unconstitutionally or explicitly arrayed against us and our progress, black people still did amazing things, right? There were success stories, you know, that happened. We had black doctors, we had black nurses, we had black lawyers, we had a vibrant black middle class. So I think at the bottom, black nationalism is optimistic in that sense. We're here to stay. We're not going to pack up and leave. And we can prosper here regardless of what white people think about us. Now, you can call that optimistic, and I understand exactly why Professor Smith calls it optimistic. But I think we have to step back and ask ourselves, you know, what is the optimistic story? Thomas says, growing up under Jim Crow was about as close to a totalitarian society as the United States has ever come. And the kind of spirit that both Smith and Thomas described, you know, reminds me of kind of like the way Russian dissidents used to talk. That um, amidst these conditions, black people survive. And I see that as an extraordinarily bleak vision. Can I split the baby and say that it is <laughs> it is both pessimistic and optimistic, but interestingly, in a way that's divided by race. Optimistic about Black people's potential, mm-hmm. but pessimistic about white people's potential. Mm-hmm. What do you, where do you fall on that, personally? <laughs> where do I fall? <laughs> um... I think I am optimistic about all of our potential to change.
optimist or pessimist, Clarence Thomas, in all his complexity, has been invisible to many of us. On both the left and the right, we've refused to see him. Instead, we say he's just like his white conservative colleagues on the Supreme Court. Or we see his wife, Ginny. And lately, we focus on the gifts from his ultra-rich friends. But looking directly at Thomas, it's clear he's not trying to hide who he is or what he believes. Like Malcolm X or MLK, he has his own American dream. A vision where Black people can succeed without any help. Especially not from white people. He calls white help the most devastating form of racism. He doesn't acknowledge the gifts he's received along the way. But this is the vision that's driven him on the highest court of our country. He might remain invisible to some of us, but he is here to stay. Look, you will always remember I am the termite in your basement. When you're on vacation, I am at work. And uh, the, the I will never, ever go. I will be there. And that's where I've been. They can go and have spring break. They can go and backpack in Europe. And I'm that termite working away. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you, More Perfect is a production of WNYC Studios. This episode was produced by me, Salman Khan, and Julia Longoria. It was edited by Emily Botin and Alyssa Eads. Fact-checked by Naomi Sharp. Special thanks this week to Kenya Young, Tara Grove, Jeannie Sue Gearson, Andre Robert Lee, David Krasnow, Jerome Campbell, Lauren Cooperman, Ivan Zimmerman, Tasha Sandoval, Kevin Merida, Bruce Shapiro, Kate Howard, and Tony Cabin. The More Perfect team also includes Emily Siner, Whitney Jones, Gabrielle Burbet, and Jenny Lawton. The show is sound designed by David Herman and mixed by Joe Plord. Our theme is by Alex Overington, and the episode art is by Candace Evers. If you want more stories about the Supreme Court, we've got lots. Go to your podcast app, hit subscribe, and scroll back for more than two dozen episodes. Supreme Court Audio is from Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. Support for More Perfect is provided in part by the Smart Family Fund and by listeners like you. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>